We're in James chapter 1 today, and we're going to continue on in our passage talking about trials today. And I, I love the lyrics of the songs that we sing, um, such profound truth. And uh, as I said in the prayer, you know, so often we don't understand why it is that God allows the things that he allows to cross our path and be part of our lives. And we don't always get the purpose and the perspective that he has, but so often it isn't even just making sense and understanding uh, why he allows those things, but it's the experience of meeting him in the midst of that. And we, we miss that. We look for answers. We, we try and reason when he's to say, hey, man, just lean on me. Draw into a deeper dependency upon me, because that's, that's what I'm using this for. It's not about the situation, it's about the relationship that I want with you, and it's, it's about what I'm accomplishing in your life. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that today, and we're going to talk about, you know, not only the trials, but the, the wisdom that God desires that we ask for and how that relates to the trials. So if you weren't with us last week, I want to begin with just a, uh, some brief background that we discussed we talked about how James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the author of this letter, this epistle. He was the half-brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the church that was in Jerusalem. And he's the only James in the New Testament that was prominent enough and well-known enough to have simply referred to himself as James and for people to have understood who he was. Plus, he's the only apostle who lived long enough to have written this letter. The... Uh, the content of this letter is is very all, you know haphazard all over the place. It's hard to find a connection between the different things that he writes. It's sort of like the book of Proverbs where you just have a bunch of wisdom and truths that come at you with rapid fire. And so it makes it very difficult to preach, but it's very practical and relevant nonetheless. We believe that the audience that James wrote to is Jewish in nature. We see that in chapter 1 where he says uh, how he writes to the 12 tribes who were dispersed or scattered abroad. Uh, we read in chapter 2 that they meet in a synagogue, that they're very monotheistic in, in, uh, in background and in belief, and, and a lot of other things of that nature that point to a Jewish audience. And because they were dispersed or scattered, we also believe that they were impoverished and oppressed and living very much as a persecuted people of God. So we'll talk more about that as we dive into it. Finally, we believe that James wrote this book somewhere in the mid-40s. And so what I failed to mention last week is that makes this the earliest book in the New Testament, which is, is pretty profound, that people would have been reading this before any other New Testament book. So as Jesus had been persecuted and crucified and then resurrected as the early church was forming and trying to find their way in a pagan, a pagan Hellenistic society, and as they experienced persecution and testing, this would have been a very practical, um, relevant book for them. And uh, its practicality and relevance speaks to us today as well. So having said that, Let's dive into chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. James writes, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
But if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that person expect that they will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded, unstable in all of their ways. Usually a New Testament author would open with the customary greeting to the people, the readers to whom they wrote, and then right after that would follow verses uh, just praising and thanking God for them or extolling and thanking God for all of his blessings and for his provision. But this is not the case with James. He immediately dives into exhortation. He immediately begins to talk about trials. And many scholars believe that that highlights and reveals the oppressed nature of his readers, that they were very much dealing with persecution. They were very much struggling with overwhelming um, just tribulation in their life and trying to make sense of that. On your outline, there's, there's three fill-ins. And the first, uh, each one of those represents kind of an action step or a command, practical command that James gives us. And the first that we'll begin with is to consider. Consider. And we find that in verse 2. James says, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. Well, what are we to consider? I think the obvious question that that arises as we go through hard times is, why am I experiencing this trial? Why is God allowing this? And to build upon what we talked about last week, the, the first thing that we might consider is that this is a crisis that God has sovereignly allowed to come into my life. Many of you know there's a, there's a big difference between God's permissive will and God's perfect will. God's permissive will represents the things that he allows. And, and those things may not be things that, that are his ultimate desire for us, like some of the sin and evil that, that happens in this world, which does not represent his will, but it's stuff that he allows. So he's not responsible for that because he hasn't caused that, but he's allowed that, as opposed to his perfect will, which is the, are the things that he orchestrates and de- designs to bring about his purposes and plans. So there's a difference between that. But the first thing we might ask is, is this just simply a crisis that God has allowed for my greater good and to draw me into deeper dependence upon him or, or to teach me something? Secondly, we might ask, is this something that's happened because of my choice, good or bad? If, if it's a poor choice that I've made in the past, then I don't have to ask why is this happening because I know very well why this is happening. I made a sinful, rebellious, stubborn choice and I'm living out the consequences. And that by, that might be very apparent. And so if that's the case, I need to confess that. I need to ask for strength and grace and forgiveness to, to carry on and make the best of it. Perhaps it's the, result of a good choice that I made. But perhaps I was in a situation at work or in my community where I was unwilling to compromise my convictions. And I took a stand for the Lord. And because of that, I suffered persecution or hardship. 
That would be the example of a good choice that I made, but nonetheless, I'm experiencing hardship because of that. So is this the result of a choice, good or bad, that I made? And the third option that we discussed last week is, does this represent a divine appointment? And I would say divine appointment represents God's perfect will. Is this something that God has literally caused or orchestrated in my life for his greater good, for his ultimate plan, to bring about his purposes? So those are three options that we can look at. But whatever the case, whether it's option one, two, or three, the question that we need to ask or believe is, do we still understand and believe that God is sovereign in the midst of that? In the midst of random crisis and persecution, stuff that seems just evil on the surface, do I still believe that God is able to work all things together for good? Though it may not represent his perfect will, do I still believe that it does not render him powerless? That it does not put him in a bind for accomplishing his purposes in my life? That it doesn't alter or change his ultimate plans or desires for me? If, if, I'm experiencing the consequences of a choice that I made, be it good or bad. Do I still believe that he is at work redeeming, bringing about his His plan, his will? And, of course, if, if I'm going through something that represents a divine appointment, uh, just rejoicing in the midst of that, that he is in control, that he is bringing about his plan, his will. That word consider in the original language literally means the cause or occasion for joy. I don't think, I think that's so foreign to us to go through a, a hard time and we go, man, this is a cause or an occasion for joy. Woohoo! Yeah, bring it on, you know? And, and honestly, there are things that happen in our lives where I, I disagree with a lot of Christians that we just smile and thank God for those things. You know, I don't think any of us were smiling and thanking God for the Thomas fire. When someone gets violated, we don't go, praise God, how wonderful. That's, that's absolutely ludicrous. And I, I absolutely oppose and reject that. But I thank God that he is bigger than that. I thank God that he is still in control. I thank God that that does not alter or change his ultimate plan and desire and purpose for me. I thank God that I know the way the story ends, that he is ultimately triumphant and victorious, and that he is bringing everything uh, together for, for good in that regard. And that ultimately I will be transformed and conformed to his image, and I will reign with him forever. And I work backwards from that, and I find hope. And I find joy, even though things might look bleak, even though things may not make any sense at all. That's what I hold on to with everything that I have. And I love that song we just sang. He's in the waiting. He's in the waiting. You know, I find God in the midst of the waiting, of the midst of the struggling, where I'm, I'm, I'm drawn out of my own depth, beyond my own resources, and I'm forced to live focused on him rather than just taking things for granted or, or operating in my own sufficiency and my own talents, my own strengths. But I'm out of my depth. And I'd be floundering, I'd be drowning unless I'm clinging to him and holding on to his word. That's what James is talking about and how important that is. 
we thank God that he is able to work all things together for good. Secondly, uh, James invites us to know in verse 2. I'm sorry, verses 3 and verse 4. To know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And therefore, we are to let or allow endurance to have its perfect result. That we might be perfect and complete, lacking in, in nothing. We need to know that even though the picture before us, even though our entire vision might be just clouded by the obstacle or the persecution or the tribulation that we're going through, God is working something bigger. He's bringing about something grander, something more glorious than what I'm able to see in the moment. And I need to be able to appreciate that, that my perspective might be very tainted and very clouded from the true picture that he's bringing about. So important. And ultimately, the end result is perfection, that I will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But what, what an amazing goal. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That phrase in Scripture is used to describe an animal that is fit to be offered to God, or a priest who is fit for service. As you may very well know, sacrifices in the Bible had to be without blemish, without defect, without any, any imperfection. And those who served in the temple had to be pure and holy and righteous before God. And so this word, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, speaks of that. That you and I will be fashioned and formed into that perfect sacrifice or that perfect servant of God who is worthy and qualified uh, to be used by God. Knowing also involves understanding. And one of the things I mentioned last week is that this, this very same Greek word that speaks of the testing that God allows is the same word that's used throughout the New Testament to speak of temptation. So testing and temptation, the same word. And the question arises, how do we differentiate? How do we know when we're going through a crisis, whether it's a testing or a temptation? And what's the difference and how do we respond and so forth? And I've said many times that one of the ways that I differentiate between tests and temptations is, number one, temptations don't come from God. And we see that clearly in verse 13, that God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Each one is enticed when they're carried away and by their own sin, and when sin is accomplished, it, it brings forth death. But Satan is the author of temptation. God tests us. Um, for our ultimate good and our development. And so to me, the difference between temptation and testing is motivation. Satan tempts us with an evil motive for our, our destruction and for our demise. God tests us in order to develop us and purify us and conform us to his image. So that's a good way to differentiate between those two things. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 provides good advice and application for us in times of temptation. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Some translations say bear up under it. 
So, number one, God does not allow you to go through a tempting situation that is outside of your depth. God would not allow you to go through what you're going through unless you had the ability to conquer it and be victorious. So that, that's the first part. And he always provides a way of escape because God's wisdom to us in times of temptation is to run, to get out of there. Sometimes the very best thing that we can do in tempting situations is to physically remove ourselves from that opportunity for temptation. Not to sit there and kind of struggle through it and work through it and quote scripture and do, but just to get out of there. That's sometimes the most practical, best thing that we can do. Well, on the other hand, if it's a test that we're going through, I don't think it does any good to run from it. Because ultimately, if God has allowed something in our life as a test and we run from it, it's not going to alter what he ultimately wants to do. He'll bring something else that will challenge us and form us to bring about what he's ultimately. So temptations we run from. Testings, we, we need to ask God for the wisdom and for the perspective to maybe understand what it is and why it, we're going through it, but to certainly um, ask for how he wants to use it in our life. And there's a big difference there. God uses times of testing to refine our faith. And I, I love what one person wrote about this. They said, God's testing is not to determine whether or not we have faith but rather it's to purify the faith that we already have, however small that might be. I love that. Sometimes we, we kind of feel like, oh, God is really just testing me. Like, do I really have any faith at all? Am I really a genuine follower of his? And I don't think that's the point. The point is that God is validating the faith that we already have, and he's refining it and developing it and forming it into a greater faith. For his purposes and his glory. James is very similar to Paul and Peter in reminding us of how God uses trials in, in difficult situations to bring, up, to bring about something greater. Paul writes in Romans 5, beginning in verse 2, Through whom, meaning through Christ, also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult... That means to express or experience joy. We exult in hope, hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. God uses trials to refine our character, to develop those character qualities that that he has, that we might be more like him. And as God refines our character, it, it, it instills hope in us because we see that he's at work. We see that he's bringing about something greater. Peter writes in his letter in, in chapter 1, verse 5, that we're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, 
even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That even though it may not make sense to me right now, even though I may not be able to see things from God's perspective, one day when I stand before him, I know that everything that he's allowed, everything that he's orchestrated, will be found to result in praise and, and honor and glory at his revelation, at his coming. It, it, it all makes sense. It all connected. It was all something instrumental in bringing about his, his good and his purposes in my life. And so I consider the nature of what I'm going through. I know that he's at work and bringing something good about. And then point number three, I, we're, we're implored or commanded to ask in verse five. If anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let that person ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. We need to ask for the wisdom to understand what it is we're going through, and perhaps why we're going through that. And, or, or, we need to ask for the grace and patience to endure whatever we're going through. And even in the absence of answers. I I don't know about you, but the majority of the time I find myself in in the second camp. I don't know why God allows what he allows. I don't understand for myself or to be able to explain it to others. But I ask for the grace and the patience to endure it even in the absence of answers, knowing and trusting that he has a a greater and a bigger plan. Never losing sight of that. Never doubting that. And James talks about the double-minded person. In the Greek, it literally means to have two souls or two minds. And he compares that to the waves of the sea. And, And the picture here is not about you and I need to be perfectly complete without any doubting, without any double-mindedness in order for God to answer our prayers. That's not the point. The point is that we don't allow trials to have us up one moment and down the other. I believe in God. Oh, I'm not really sure if God loves me, if if his plans for me are good. Oh, yeah, he's wonderful, he's great. No, he's horrible, he's terrible. That we shouldn't live like that, but that we should have that, that faithfulness of heart and conviction of vine to trust him at all times, even if it doesn't make sense to us, even if we can't see answers from our perspective, that we hold on to him and we believe in his goodness. I like how Valerie talked about that today, that the songs that we sing, ultimately, each one of them is expressing our underlining foundational belief in the goodness of God, that, that he cares for us and has good plans for us. So ultimately, we, we ask and we pray for wisdom. Number one, to understand what we're going through. And number two, to be able to use what we're going through for what God intends for us. And I think that those are independent of one another. Sometimes we don't understand what we're going through or why we're going through it, but we can still pray for wisdom to allow God to use it in order for how he wants it to be used. And that we don't fall short of that. <clears throat> well, 
James isn't saying, like I said, that he only grants our requests if we're perfect. And one of the greatest examples we have in Scripture is of Abraham. If we didn't know the story of Abraham, we might be kind of deceived into thinking that he was this great pillar of faith who never floundered, who never doubted, who just believed God at, at his word. Because that's sort of the, the picture that sometimes is, is painted in the New Testament. But we know that when God made that promise to Abraham and Sarah that he would be the father of many nations, uh, of many children, ultimately they laughed. They thought it was ludicrous that that he at, at age 100 and Sarah at age 90 would still be able to conceive. At the human impossibility of God's promise, they doubted. They, they had great questions. But listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. He says, In hope against hope, Abraham believed that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. But here's the point that I want you to get. Verse 20. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew in faith, giving glory to God. That's what I want for myself. That's what I want for you. That with respect to the promises of God, we don't waver. That, that we hold on to those promises. Not as wishful thinking or flowery words that, that express, you know, optimistic. No. That whatever God has promised, He will deliver upon. And though I may not understand it, may I, though I may not see how, I hold on to the promises of God with everything that I have fully believing that what he promised he's able to deliver upon. And I give glory to him. And the last part of that in verse 21, being fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. Whatever God promises, he is fully able to perform. Do you believe that? I know we believe that in good moments, but it's in the midst of tough times that we call that into question. And we throw that out the window like, God, what is up? You know, did you forget about me? Did your plans change? Did I do something to offend you? You know, and, and it's okay to struggle. It's okay to ask questions. But we have to hold on to that fundamental foundational belief that God is good. That he is always sovereign. He is always in control. And that his power is not rendered, rendered inoperative. It does not alter or change his plans and purposes for us. I like what Paul wrote about himself in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12. As he was sitting in jail awaiting his own death. At the end of his life he says, I know whom I have believed in. And I am convinced and persuaded that he is able to keep that, to guard that which I've committed unto him until that day. Until the day that he returns, or until the moment that I see him face to face, I know that he is, he's faithful. He's faithful to hold on to my questions, to my, my prayers, my longings, my desires, and, and he, will, he will act upon that. 
He will bring about his perfect will. I, I wanted to close today with a with, with an object lesson. We have this this blanket at home that on one side is a, a tangled mess of knots and kind of connections, and I wanted to hold that up for you. And then to turn it around so you could see the other side, the, the, the beautiful picture. But the reality is, is one side doesn't really look that much better than the other. Because <laughs> it's just a cheap blanket that somebody gave to us. And I know if I did, my wife would be like, why did you bring that? That's just so pathetic. And it would have been a good object lesson because it still would have been memorable. But perhaps some of you have tapestries or needlepoint at home that that would be a much better illustration of that where on one side it's just knots and things tied together and you go what in the world then you flip it and you go oh wow now and and you know what that is so representative and symbolic of one day when we see him face to face all the things that didn't make sense all the tangled knots all the mess of this world will be flipped and we'll go, oh, wow, that is, that is beautiful. I did not see how that related, how that tied together, how he used this and that, and how his plans all along behind the scenes were at work, bringing about his greater purposes. And I believe that with all of my heart. And I don't believe that because it's wishful thinking. I believe that because that's what Scripture proclaims and holds out for you and I as hope that we can be convicted of that. Let's pray.